Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me this week is not professional vacationer Thea Leonarduzzi, who is scandalously unwell at the moment. We hope she gets better soon. In her stead, filling the role of presenter not only due to her talent and literary heft, but also because she's a token northerner as well, is Lucy Dallas. Lucy, hello. Hello. I know you don't like to read the paper, so I'm very sorry you've had to do it in preparation for this podcast. That's okay. I made a massive exception. Did you enjoy it? I read it this week. You read? No. Everybody will know that I love to read the paper. Did you read the whole paper? No, I did didn't you just read the, the Did you just read the items? Time. Did you just read the items we're discussing now? I read around it. Did That's you? That's what I did. Yep. But not in the paper. Just the, <laughs> just, just the <laughs> Some articles. Some of it in the paper. I read around it from, from our archives as oh, well. Oh, that's, yep. a, that's impressive. It's all absolutely super. I think people should subscribe. That's... <laughs> Great. Commercialism. Rank commercialism. That's all I'm It's an advertorial. Yeah, it's all, all I'm interested in. Uh, coming up on the show this week, we begin our poetry special in the paper this week with two pieces on the giant of Italian medieval poetry. Dante. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, has considered the theology of Dante. And Ian Thompson has considered how the Divine Comedy inspired the Texan maverick painter Robert Rauschenberg. Ian's going to be in the studio to discuss that. We are also lucky enough to carry a conversation with the great theatrical figure and perhaps unparalleled director of Shakespeare, Peter Brook. Our very own Michael the Dr Keynes has spoken to him. We'll run the whole conversation as a separate podcast, but give you a 10-minute taster here. We also keep things poetical with a discussion about the unjustly neglected American poet Weldon Keyes. Who he, you might say. Mark Ford will be on hand to tell us. Midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. So begins the 1954 translation of the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. The words come from the American poet John Ciardi. Between 58 and 1960, the bad boy of American pop art, Robert Rauschenberg, immersed himself in Ciardi's version of The Inferno. The result was a series of pictures on the theme of damnation, one for each of the 34 cantos. 
Ian Thompson, in his piece this week, describes them thus. Images of weightlifters taken from Sports Illustrated, golf and deodorant adverts, news media shots of John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon were superimposed onto smudgy watercolour, pencil and crayon backgrounds to conjure a 20th century Hades. Thompson has reviewed a book by Ed Crutchmer called Rauschenberg Dante, which explores the interaction between this medieval Christian poet and a Texan neo-Dardaist maverick. He joins Lucy and me in the studio. Ian, welcome to you. Can you tell us a bit about this translation that was around in the 50s? What sort of inferno would Rauschenberg have been reading when he was reading this Chardy translation? So this is the 1954 Chardy translation of The Inferno. And of course, Dante's entire work is made up of three books, The Inferno, Purgatory and Paradise. And Chardy in 54 brought out his translation of The Inferno. And I think that Kritschmer in his book suggests that this translation, which was very pared down, written in a very contemporary kind of American vernacular, somehow captured the American readership at this time, an America that was about to be torn apart by civil rights movement, uh, by the Cold War, indeed we're in the middle of the Cold War, and the gloom and the sort of darkness of Dante's vision of man somehow chimed in with the American readership. And Rauschenberg picked up on this uh, translation. He couldn't understand, he couldn't read Italian. He was moreover dyslexic. But I think mm. he saw something in this uh, vision of fallen man that attracted him. Because it's strange in a way for him to be drawn to, to Dante, because as is, I, I said in that introduction and, and you say in the piece, on the face of it, there's not an awful lot of points of contact between this medieval poet and, and this Texan maverick. Yes, Dante is not really your average kind of pop art subject. This is a late medieval poem uh, about the fall of man and his eventual redemption. Uh, Robert Rauschenberg, who was self-confessedly gay and also was the son of uh, fundamentalist Christian parents, would not really automatically have been attracted to Dante. But I think, like a lot of readers of Dante, and there are millions of them in the world, it's the most translated book in Western literature, The Inferno, is it? after the the Bible. Um, he saw in Dante, I think, an image of uh, every man, somebody, an ordinary guy, an ordinary Joe who sets out in life to find himself, to discover himself and eventually to gain some kind of insight into his state as a human being. So I think that this medieval poem appealed to Rauschenberg on that level, really, as an actually very human work. It's really interesting when you say that he's because he only did the Inferno partly because that that was the one that had been translated at that point, um, but that that's the one that because the work as a whole, Dante wanted us to get through Purgatory into Paradise, didn't he? The idea of the work is not that we stop and that we concentrate on Hell and stay there, very much not. And when you say it's the most translated work, is is it the whole thing or is it that everybody is interested in? The Inferno and not the other bit. I've only read The Inferno, actually. Yeah, that's I quite think. typical. I, I think, think most people only have ever read The Inferno. There's a sense, wrong sense, actually, that Paradise and Purgatory are quite dull mm. by comparison. He, the, you know, uh, Paradise had its champions. Shelley, the English romantic poet, was one of the few among the romantics who thought it was greater work than The Inferno. But otherwise, people love the sulfurous whiff of damnation. It's, it's a bit like Milton, isn't it? Those are exactly. always the fun, that perceived as the funner bits. Very um, much so. so tell us about the paintings. What did he do with this with this inspiration? Well, this, Rauschenberg, this who, as you said in your introduction, was a sort of bad boy of American pop art, and he was a sort of neo-Dadaist, uh, evolved this uh, solvent transfer technique 
whereby he would pour uh, lighter fuel onto the back of magazine or newspaper images and then rub the reverse kind of vigorously with an old ballpoint pen. And what came out was this very ghostly kind of X-ray sort of transfer. Mm. So he used images from Life magazine, from sports journals, from copies of Time magazine as illustrations to his uh, version of Dante's Inferno. And do you like them? I mean, what do you make of them aesthetically? I think they're beautiful. They are very, very subtle, kind of gauzy, rather discomforting, yeah. translucent works. There are 34 of them, and they're all on display currently at the Museum of we're Modern Art try, in We tried to use one as a cover for the paper, but they are so translucent and sort of hazy. It doesn't work at all as a cover for, say, a, a magazine. It just it just dissipates almost into nothing. Yes. And they're very suggestive as well, aren't they? It's not, that, it's not immediately clear what's going on. You have to pay attention... And um, and I know you say there's these figures from magazines and sometimes you think you can map one picture onto one canto, but also there's a danger in trying to map it too directly, isn't there, I think? Yes, um, there's a sense perhaps that you would enjoy the pictures more if you knew your Dante because they're densely coded. Mm. And so in each of the 34 pictures, there is something there that will appeal to the Dantista, you know, the Dante expert. Yeah. But I think personally you don't need that at all. I mean, the images themselves are very... Uh, disconcerting as Rauschenberg intended them to be. For example, um, in one of the cantos, I think Canto 7 of the Inferno, which is reserved for those who have uh, sinned against nature, ah. there are images of fire raining down onto the desert. <coughs> and of course, fire you know, normally burns upwards. So this is a sense of uh, perversion of nature. Uh, of course, you know, in Dante's time, this is where homosexuals were confined to this canto. This is Brunetto Latini, isn't it? Yes. He's Dante's teacher. Yes, Dante's great teacher, great humanist in early 14th century Florence, uh, is confined to that circle of hell. Uh, so Rauschenberg, as a homosexual, said, you know, I'm very upset by what uh, Dante's done to Brunetto Latini. Nevertheless, I'm going to do my best with an image of him. And so I think he took something from a Time Life magazine and superimposed that. Did, did he connect was it images of black people? Was there an, an argument that, that uh, Kritschmer makes in, in, this, in this book that oppressed people, black people in America in the 50s and, and gay people in, in medieval Italy, there's a connection there. Is that, is that a stretch or did you buy that as a theory? I kind of bought it. I mean, I think that's very much the author's um, version, Ed Critchmer's view. There's certainly a sense, I think, in some of these pictures that uh, African-Americans are associated in Rauschenberg's mind with, uh, with the gay community as both being uh, exiles from the mainstream, as both being... Uh, in some sense, uh, marginalised from society. Um, but I think there's also a sense that some of the images that we see of uh, Satan's mischievous kind of uh, helpmates are all African-Americans. So is Rauschenberg sort of betraying some sort of prejudice very much of its time in these images here? We don't know. Possibly, yes. And on Rauschenberg, where do you think he stands in, in, in the pantheon? Where... where... You know, in both of pop art and I suppose of the the art canon more more generally, is he is he a significant figure? Do you think is he sufficiently well recognised? Uh, of all of Rauschenberg's work, and I don't pretend to know it very well, this the Dante cycle is the one that I love the most. And he worked on it for two years, as you said, between fifty eight and sixty. And then in nineteen sixty four, he won the Venice Biennale, and this was no doubt linked to this great cycle that he'd done on Dante. And they're not by any stretch of the imagination what you call pop art. They're sort of post-abstract expressionist yeah. works. 
I wouldn't have even said no. I wouldn't have even said pop mm-hmm. art looking at them at all, would you? No, not not at all. And it was a, it was after the Biennale, wasn't it, that he then became a star, a, a yeah. kind of an ob- a, a big star that people knew about. And this Absolutely. was a kind of quieter period of of um, of work, I suppose. Um, but the point I made about Don, Dante interests me about how the Chiardi piece was a Cold War Dante. It was a Dante of, of, of his time. People might say that we're living in gloomy. Cold War two times. Do we think that Dante will get another look in? Will there be another translation for our times? Is there a translation for our times that that, that exists? Well, the most recent was by Clive James, and he is one of the very few people who yeah, have been right. brave or foolhardy enough to translate all three works of the Divine Comedy, as yeah. to say, Hell, Paradise, and Purgatory. I but, like the idea. I kind of like the idea of a Dante for your times. That that yes. that, that seems to. Yes, there have been lots of attempts. I mean, uh, Peter Greenaway, the film director, did his own version of the Inferno for video, uh, a pop video, which starred, um, starred, but anyway, featured John Gielgud, I think, as a narrator. Um, And there have been lots of attempts by Italian film directors. Pasolini, for example, um, wrote his own version of a modern Dante for 60s Italy. Um, I think Dante appeals to us all, actually. He reaches out to people of whatever faiths, creeds, backgrounds. He's one of the great writers whose uh, message has never really died. And that's and, and the, 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 the simplicity of the narrative, I remember when I first read Inferno, the idea of a guide and a man exploring. There's, there's, there is something, you could, there's almost, you, know, you could see a film, sort of buddy movie aspect. To it. There's a, there is a simple thing, do you know what I think? Well, it's, I think it's, it's a lovely direct way in, yeah, that, the yeah. beginning. You don't yeah. have to get past a lot of context or it's just him saying, well, I woke up and I didn't know where I was and I was in a wood and then, and, and it's, it's very quick and easy to get in, I think. Yes. And Dante is sort of 33 then. I mean, at that time, he would have been absolutely halfway through his life. So it's the way a lot of people feel when they reach their middle age mark. You know, he's lost in this dark wood. Where now? Well, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a really interesting thing that Rauschenberg did with it. I'm I'm very grateful to you for for, I didn't know that much about Rauschenberg and Dante together. And it's uh, it's nice to to bring the two together. Uh, And thank you so much for coming in now. The car of Weldon Keys was discovered on the morning of 19th of July 1955 in a parking lot at the north end of the Golden Gate Bridge. His presumed suicide places him in the roll call of American poets who took their own lives in the middle decades of the 20th century. Hart Crane, John Berryman, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Weldon Keys, as Mark Ford notes in this week's TLS, is probably the least known and the least critically acclaimed of mid-century America's poet Modine. But as is also often the case, those who are aficionados have a true passion for his work. Mark has reviewed the poetry of Weldon Keys, Vanishing as Presence by John T. Irwin, which has one of those subtitles that slightly makes the soul shrivel. But is the first monograph on Keyes' work. Mark joins Lucy and me now. Mark, before we go to the poet, I wonder, should we talk a bit about Keyes, the man? Is he a romantic figure? It seems to me that Irwin is quite taken by this idea of suicide as an aesthetic act. Is, is that convincing to you? Well, there were the, the poets that you mentioned diced with, with death um, in their work, and one can sort of see their deaths coming to some extent, um, that certainly Plath, Sexton and Berryman were engaged in a, in a, a kind of race against death. But Keyes' work is, is actually not hysterical or expressionist in that kind of way. And it doesn't, uh, one wouldn't anticipate his, his dying or his suicide from it. 
um, obviously he was going to die, but whether he did take his own life is still, he probably did, but there were sightings of him uh, in the decades afterwards. So some people like to think that he disappeared, that he'd um, done this kind of um, magic vanishing act, and that's what Irwin's title refers to. His work is very bleak, and it's unremitting in its kind of unillusioned state, but it's not proto-suicidal uh, like, the, uh, like the work of, say, um, Plath or Berryman. Uh, well, let's talk about the poetry um, uh, then. How would you... Because I wonder how many people listening to um, to to this will have read much Weldon Keys. I suspect... I could be wrong, but I suspect probably not. What sort of poet would you say he was? Erwin links him to Crane and Wallace Stevens, but actually reading him this morning and reading him in the past, th- that didn't quite connect with me. What sort of poet do you think he is? Well, I think in relation to, to those two, he, he is a post-modernist poet, by which I mean very literally he comes after these modernists. And these modernists had a kind of idealistic or utopian vision of how America could be. But Keyes came after them, and his work is something of a debunking of their illusions, of their utopian vision of America, that he uh, lived through the Second World War. He actually had a job uh, writing the captions for newsreels from the war. So he mm. had this terrible experience of watching these uh, footage of uh, battles against the Japanese and kind of writing captions to them. Uh, he was a bit of a polymath, really. He, he, he was in a jazz band. He was an abstract expressionist painter. He was interested in science. So he didn't kind of focus on any particular though his poetry is what he's remembered for now, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. And he wasn't also, unlike those people, he wasn't seduced by the idea of fame. Truman Capote went up to him one time at a party and said, you don't want to be famous. Why not? I can see it. Uh, You ought to be. You're better than that old Robert Lowell any day. Uh, But Keyes just was almost, he saw through fame. He saw through the kind of um, the capitalist um, hedonistic life of, uh, the 50s, um, and he didn't, he couldn't quite believe in things. So he was, in that sense, he's close to a poet like Philip Larkin. He was a less deceived poet. Uh, and I think the bleakness of his work comes from his inability to buy into the illusions that structure other people's lives. I, I, I was struck by, I mean, this, is, this may be wrong, and you know, you, you're one of these aficionados I, I mentioned, I think, of, of Keyes. It reminded me a bit of Hopper paintings, reading some of his. Because um, they are they are very un, unforgivingly narrated. I think they're, 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 there's a bleakness and there's a kind of removal of any distraction. It just focuses in very much down on the reality of the life it's describing. Yeah, they are brilliant tableaus of um, both, both kind of landscape tableaus and kind of um, character sketches of people of people whose lives are often kind of deprived of meaning or who are living in some kind of terror. Uh, and the most famous of these is the character he creates called Robinson, oh, yes. about four Robinson poems. And Robinson sort of derives a bit from J. Alfred Prufrock in that he's a kind of bourgeois flaneur character in some of them. But he's also haunted by a kind of doppel, doppelganger um, who seems to incarnate some kind of um, terror uh, for for. Uh, the character. So, as in Hopper painting, you get these kind of lone, these lonely scenes of, of characters isolated in rooms, um, whom one can't, who are enigmatic, whose lives one can't quite fathom, but um, who seem to be encased in a kind of loneliness. And it, it seems to me that with those figures, there is this this clarity, um, but often there, there isn't necessarily anything awful happening. 
but the spin is very much the, the, the kind of voice is suggesting that something awful is about to happen or perhaps something else has just happened and, you know, we're not mentioning it. I think that's true. There's an element almost of bathos in some of the poems that uh, if something terrible would happen, <laughs> then that would be something at least. Mm, yeah. But um, there is no kind of climactic event which gives significance or, or, or some kind of narrative shape to what's happening. There's a line you quote about Robinson, sad and usual heart dry as a winter leaf, which I think gets to some of the things you're talking about. It's not dramatic, but there's a, it's, it's kind of sorrowful. That's true. And there's one where, where um, the narrator thinks he sees Robinson and he thinks that he's some kind of nightmare figure, but he's not sure that it was Robinson or whether Robinson has metamorphosed into this kind of alter ego. So it's, there's a sense in which the kind of horror or terror or kind of gothic elements which are so prominent in American literature hover at the edge of Keyes' poems without ever fully taking over the narrative. How visible do you think a figure is Keyes now? I, mean, I did an American paper at, at university I don't recall him being meant, I mean, you know, things are a little bit misty when I think back to the university, so this could just be my memory. But I don't recall him being mentioned. Is, is, he, is he a well-regarded, well-recognised figure, do you think? No, I'm afraid he isn't. He ought to be, but I'm afraid he isn't. I make the point that even his best-known poems, the Robinson poems, don't make it into the Norton Anthology of American literature. And he's not taught on courses, I wouldn't have thought. Um, and while he has this slightly kind of cult following of uh, particular poets um, who are very highly regarded here, such as Michael Hoffman and uh, Simon Armitage, yeah. both great fans, um, and in America, Donald Justice, who's a wonderful poet who kind of helped resuscitate Keyes's reputation in the 60s, they are fervent admirers, um, or Justice is dead now, but Dana Joyer has taken up the mantle. In general, Keyes's work doesn't figure on courses and he's the kind of preserve of those who who like it. And why is that? If you had to, I mean, it's an interesting point. That, that I think it's a fascinating conversation to always consider why, you know, why some authors prosper and others don't. You know, why is Jane Austen better known than Walter Scott? Or and there are reasons for it. But what do you think the reason is f- uh, f- for this? What, what makes because because he, he's not difficult. In some ways, you could say some of these poets are difficult, and you can see why they become a little bit intimidating to the reader. But he he really isn't difficult. No, uh, um, his, his, his work is terrifically kind of pleasurable. <laughs> and to an extent, uh, I compared him with Philip Larkin. There's a sense in which the reader who likes Philip Larkin could very possibly like um, uh, Weldon Keyes. I think um, it, it, there's the kind of randomness sort of canon formation. Also, he's, although he disappeared, and that's exciting, his life didn't have the kind of, um, if you compare him with Plath or Berryman or Lowell, it wasn't as dramatic a life. And his persona is rather cool and knowing. He doesn't kind of buttonhole you or kind of press himself upon you. There's something lucid and clear, but perhaps somewhat untheatrical. Well, and I wonder whether that's the problem. Because, you know, Wallace Stevens had a very boring life. He was an insurance salesman, wasn't he, I, I think. And yet his work is, is has and his name is, resounds now very much. Is, is there a question that people want difficulty they want to have a poem that they scratch their heads over because it says something about their own mental acuity whereas something that is so accessible actually counts against it uh, it can do i mean uh, wallace stevens i should say was, was quite high up in the insurance business he was a vice president rather oh, than the sales sorry i'm sorry he wasn't door to door and uh, it's true that difficulty is a kind of modernist uh, we got modernism created the notion that poetry was difficult and uh, in comparison with Stevens, Keyes is fairly straightforward. 
uh, and certainly also with crane or pound. Um, but um, I think the kind of vagaries of, of reputation are very difficult to uh, understand or to plot. And um, Keyes writes these poems that work very, very well in their own terms, and those who like them like them. But he doesn't somehow um, make sense in terms of the ways in which we chart the movement from modernism to postmodernism. That's interesting. Mm, so he doesn't. He doesn't. He's not a figure that you can sort of easily slot in. No, I mean I think we go for from that generation who was born the same year um, or, or a few years before Robert Lowell, mm. but then the generation after Allen Ginsberg, Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they kind of have have um, in some ways kind of fit into narratives of the development of American poetry, whereas Keyes always seems somehow a branch line, that he's a kind of in, in, enjoyable or um, uh, extremely interesting example of a certain kind of, of new critical poet, you could say, um, but he doesn't look forward to the future in the ways in which um, in the, the, this tribe of more experimental poets, such as Ginsberg or, or Ashbury or O'Hara do. Well, Mark, I, I really do hope that people reading uh, your piece and listening to you now will will take a moment to go and you know, Google Weldon Keys and and revisit that branch line because uh, I lost an hour this morning doing it. It gave me an awful lot of pleasure. So thank you very much uh, for joining us today. My pleasure. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Peter Brook is one of the outstanding theatre makers of our time. His work ranges from Titus Andronicus with Laurence Olivier in 1955 to Marat Sard in 1964 to a white box circus extravaganza of A Midsummer Night's Dream at Stratford in 1970. And that's just on this side of the channel. Peter's new book, Tip of the Tongue, draws on a lifetime of bold international work, both in Paris at the Bouffe du Nord. Is that right, Lucy? I mean, yes, more you, or less. You say it. 
the bouffe du nord. Yeah. He's also been all over the world as well as directing films such as King Lear with Paul Schofield in the lead role, Lord of the Flies and the Mahabharata. He is in that sense a master of reinvention. Brooke has written in his seminal book, The Empty Space, that the slate is always wiped clean in theatre. Its impermanence marks it out from the other arts. Before we listen to our own elusive spirit, Michael the Dr Keynes, who's spoken to Peter, Lucy, you're our arts editor. I am, yes. How, how excited are you about Peter Brook? What I'm does he mean to you? Really, really totally excited. Have you seen any of his stuff? Ever? Yes, I've been to the Bouffe du Nord a long time ago. I'm just going to say a long time yeah. ago. But let's, let's not talk about your age. <laughs> you, always, you always seem desperate to talk about your no, age. No, you know, we won't talk about it this one time, Sig. No. Um, and I saw uh, he did a bunch of things uh, inspired by uh, Oliver Sacks' books. Really? And I saw, yeah, I saw a couple of things they did there. That's interesting. Which were just pretty wonderful and I saw his production of Don Giovanni which was at the Aix-en-Provence festival a friend of mine was in it so I managed to sneak in a couple of times and he didn't do that much opera did he he did very little opera and this was very unusual it was a very pared down cast and he worked with the cast a lot and it basically had no set there's very much like any other production of Don Giovanni you'll ever see which is full of masks and sort of curtains and foldy roll do you know what I mean yeah uh, and this had nothing. I mean, like a chair or two and some bits of sort of cloth. Very, very minimal. It was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it was really wonderful. So it's a bit the end of Don Giovanni. It's not my favourite one, Don Giovanni, but this was one of the best things I've ever seen on stage, full stop, because it's a bit at the end when he gets dragged down into hell. And it's very difficult to do with any kind of yeah. terror or you don't yeah, know whether yeah. to do it realistically or not. And with the best will in the world, you've got to have... Somebody singing their head off and also acting. While they're being dragged into hell. All that sort of thing. And they did it with whatever it was on stage. Eight people, ten people, and I would say four chairs and bits of cloth. And it was genuinely terrifying. Really? really? Yeah, really terrifying. Because he's credited wonderful. with Shakespeare, making Shakespeare dark. So his version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes, I haven't seen... I've seen the, the pictures I've of seen that the famous picture, production. Yeah, because he's on the swing. The the, yes. the the fairies on a swing swinging above the don't stage. Don't they have long sort of banners and streamers for that I think that's, as well? Yeah, I think they? that's right. I think that's right. It's very exciting. So he is this great figure in the last really post-war period. In, I in, mean, huge. And not just here either. In, throughout Europe. And Michael uh, Keynes has spoken to him. And he sat down with him and asked him about the inspiration behind his new book. Trial and Error. And through trial and error, gradually, if you really go on and you produce with all your resources and all the resources of the people you work with a whole lot of material, then gradually what's unnecessary falls away. And Gordon Craig gave this great answer when he was asked, what is your working method? And he said very simply, elimination. 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 And here we are. I'm having to answer the best I can any question you put for me, but I know quite well that if this was given to me afterwards and written, I would cut myself two-thirds of it. So that's where one has to say that there is something very subtle that can come through if we just for a moment try the best we can and then quietly let be. And then that's what the whole part of the book where I talk about letting things happen. When I talk about the formless hunch, 
I'd had to have gone through all the impossibilities. I had this very early on in my career when people said to me, if you're a director, a young director, you must prepare. So I took this seriously and I sat in front of a model and I moved the little figures right and left and then I made little notes on the script. Take two steps here, right, stop, look across. And I developed a whole crowd scene that way with all sorts of things, music, indications. Had a great ball doing this. But then I came into rehearsal and just saw quite simply that none of it was any good. And I think all one needs is to be able to say to oneself, it's no good. And at that moment, things fall away. And that's what the formless hunch is about. The moment you have to work with forms, if there wasn't a form, if we hadn't a table here, I hadn't a glass of water, you haven't got a microphone, me a microphone, we couldn't be doing this. But they are not the cause of whatever good may come out of anything we say to one another. That will happen, and that's why I say the formless hunch. People get obsessed with the form, and the form is just a starting point. It's something we need in the way I write in the book a lot about that. We need words, but words are just a form, and gradually you can find that the word is either a dead piece of useless bone, or it is vibrating because within the word there is more and more, and that's what I wrote all about Shakespeare, it's all about that. But within his words, if you come knowing what they're about, if you come and you've studied the, all the professors and you've read all the footnotes, you are clogged, and neither you nor the actors can go beyond a certain point. But if you say, yes, you have to prepare, and now when you come to it, you have to trust the true magic of intuition. And the intuition only comes if you've prepared the ground, and if you then have the simple goodwill to stop taking yourself so seriously, and that's why working with a company is so important. Everybody at first comes with fears and egos, and that's natural, that is human life. But the rehearsal process brings you to something which eventually you need some spectators for the process to be completed, and then something more than you could have ever hoped for happens. I'm very struck by something you, you wrote elsewhere, I think, about seeing Brecht. You, you saw oh, yes. his productions, didn't you? And oh, yes. They're, they're nothing what, what you expect if you'd only read his theoretical writings about theatre. Is that right? Yeah, because he was a great theorist, a brilliant man, a very, very committed, excessively committed in politics, but at the same time, part of him had an incredible talent for what we call all the aspects of production, all the aspects of it. So when he did a production, it was no longer what he was telling people to do and what his followers did, which is to try to use the theatre to express social and political ideas. It was to bring something brilliantly, warmly, glowingly to life through images, through things 
like Mother Courage, which are almost mythical, and at the same time with images which demanded the best of the German theatre of his time. So he had all the, after English, polite West End actors to see those German actors where you really felt the soil of the country that they came to, so that there were massive bodies which didn't mean to search for you know, physical expression. Mm -hmm. They had the great presence that came really from the country. And they had really wonderfully developed voices, great intelligence, and not an intelligence that was being used as Brecht theoretically suggested in a dialectical, analytical way. They could just enter into a part. And the actors he had, the designers he had, the music, is all when he came to London for the London theatre it was a revelation because there was this appreciation of the arts of the theatre and suddenly here beyond this great German theoretician here suddenly was the most splendid expression of pure theatre. There is something that appeals to you I think in the acting of somebody who has a cameo in Tip of the Tongue, Paul Schofield. Oh somebody whose whose gift was for I kind of absolute practical in the moment kind of kind of acting. In the moment. I think that that is the essence in the moment. That is where theatre takes place. That's why it's so concentrated. You can take an entire life. So many plays do this. I mean in Shakespeare's history he does a whole cycle of history, but into his famous two hours traffic of this stage he can bring together what in everyday life is 20, 30, two centuries, or in one person's life is 70, 80 years, and all of that you can feel and experience vividly and intensely because there is this concentrating instrument called the stage which enables you to enter into it and you feel it within an hour and a half two hours. That's why the present is what it's all about. Theatre doesn't exist. People have tried to. I've known so many university papers, which is natural for students, but they have to write for their thesis a description of plays. And I've even read things written about my productions. I read something about King Lear. I was amazed. Here was a young student who couldn't have seen something 50 years ago, but he was writing from what he had read from other people and had seen in the college library, mm -hmm. even clippings from the newspapers, and from that he was writing and actually writing critically. And he said, but that scene wasn't as good as... <laughs> <laughs> and here you come to the two sides of the whole theatre, the immediateness of it, that's why, I mean, I went through the different phases of theatre in the empty space, but in the end came to the only theatre that I know that is, has a reality, which is the immediate theatre. I, I love what you say in, in that book about the, the, the rough theatre. It seems oh. you've had so many experiences of doing that, just to shake things up, to see what's going yeah, to happen. It's, it's very honest, it's very good. Uh, but it also is a way in which you are not afraid to perhaps fail. I mean, there's something in the, in the mm. threads of time about 
being in LA and trying to get people just to turn up to a performance, but they're all in their cars. <laughs> yeah. So even techniques, as, as what you say about Brecht reminds me, you know, that you, you yourself had to adapt and learn to many oh, different yeah. skills in the theatre, oh, it seems. Of course. You just learn what you, what you need to yes. learn. Uh, I, I mean, that applies. You learn all the way. You learn all, exactly, you're a learner. You can't, you can't stop and then can't stop. give up on it. Because, no, because what you've learned b b belongs again already to yesterday. That's exactly. I mean, you, you wrote about US, didn't you, and how yeah. the production, in a way, the perfect run would have been a night yeah. because things date. I, I'm conscious that we're, we are talking in a day after um, uh, the death of Peter Hall. Oh. And that brings to mind all that work. I mean, to put it no more strongly than this, all, all that work that really changed the way Shakespeare's done in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and also, that I think I've read somewhere, so again, I'm acting just like that student you've just described, <laughs> but I read, I, read, I read somewhere, and you, so you have to tell me if this is wrong, that really when, when you joined the Royal Shakespeare Company, it was on the condition that he gave you money for for actual research, for experimenting time. Is no, that, is no, that, no, that's, no not, that's not how it happened? No, no, no. I came into, it was a, a, a great man who today should be honoured on the highest level, That's Sir true. Barry Jackson. And it was Sir Barry Jackson, who I was doing my first work in Birmingham with Paul Schofield, and yeah. one day he said to me, over lunch in the Station Hotel, <laughs> I've just been appointed director of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. Would you like to come with me? Well, I'm going to take my car and go over and look at it. And he, this fine, elegant, old-fashioned... Birmingham businessman who was a man of extraordinary polite, courteous purity mm -hmm. and of intuition came and looked at this quietly we went through the different departments and he just said it's quite clear we must change all this and then he just said these words that changed everything led into the Peter Hall the ever and everything that I've known there at this moment, the Shakespeare Festival is reviving old productions. There's a repertory of, and they have just six days to re-rehearse from last year, six productions. Nothing must be changed. All the actors, the comics do the same business, but they just have to re-rehearse to get back into the, into the machine. And with that, and no hardly ever a new production and he said this is we must have at least four five weeks for each production so we must construct the season differently we can't open everything in one week which is what they used to it must be spaced out week after week month after month and it's so gradually a festival through the summer and it was that that Peter Hall then took over and it was into that that I went in Stinnan, Sir Barry's day, mm -hmm. did my very first production, which was Love's Labour's Lost. Then I did Love's Labour's Lost, I did Romeo and Juliet, I think Measure for Measure. Peter Hall came and he invited me to join him in the with a marvellous colleague, Michel Saint Denis, very fine French director, to be a little trio running this theatre, and he asked me would, very generously, typically him, would I join him? And I said, yes, on one condition, 
that I can also start a little experimental group paid for by the theatre, facilities given by the theatre, but which is not under the obligation to give any results whatsoever. It is research. We see that without research there can't be creation, that the word creation, which is very pretentious, and the word research is pretty pretentious, but one depends as the other as an endless in and out flow. And he said, yes, of course. And that's led bit by bit to the Marassad and then eventually all that we did after. Peter, thank you very much yeah. for joining us. Thank you. Yes, sir. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Peter Brook and the Dr. Michael Keynes, to Ian Thompson and to Mark Ford. And my thanks go to indie pop star... Lucy Dallas. You didn't think I was going to mention that, did you? I was pretty sure you would. Yeah, I normally do. See, I find a joke that's not that funny once. I find it gets funnier the more you say it. Super. It's not really a joke, you know, Stig. No, well, what? There is some some kernel of truth in there. You do want to talk about BC. I've I've lured you in then. You are a serious pop star. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the show, Thea. We hope you get well soon. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which also contains a guide to houses in literary fiction, think Pemberley, and the Tinder of the 1940s. Please tweet this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please do reviewers on iTunes. Next week, we'll be considering the spectre of drug addiction in all of its forms. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.